0: I'm Heidi Zuckerman and this is Conversations About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. You probably have noticed we are doing a string of conversations about art with artists, and my guest today is my longtime friend and colleague, Teresita Fernandez. We first worked together in 1999 when I curated an exhibition of hers at the Berkeley Art Museum. She has gone on to win a MacArthur Genius Award in 2005, to be appointed by President Obama to the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, which is a 100-year-old federal panel that advises the President and Congress on national matters of design and aesthetics. And she was the first Latina to serve in that role. And the conversation today talks about her practice and the intimacies that she finds and shares between matters and places and human beings.
1: You learn to become very finely attuned to your instinct. And certainly that is something that has been very useful for me in making art, which is that I've learned to trust my instinct.
0: And her work and its questions on power and visibility and erasure provide opportunities for self-reflection and wayfinding as we move through the world. I wanted to start off by asking you how you first started making art and when you realized that was going to be your life's work.
1: I think I didn't know I was making art when I first started to make art there's this thing that I remember doing as, as an adult, as an artist, that I remember doing as a child that I realized was the seed of my practice, which was that I would make these lists when I was you know, a, a kid and a, and a teenager. I would make these lists of things that made sense together for me, but didn't make sense together in any other way other than that they had a resonance. And it was this very subjective practice that I couldn't explain to anybody. And it was a very private practice. And it's most akin to the kind of things that I do now. And when I started college, I, I was definitely an art kid in high school. And I was president of the National Art Honor Society. And I was always in the studio but I also was the kid of you know, exiled parents, and there was a kind of pragmatism that it wasn't so much imposed, but that you were aware of, that a lot was sacrificed for you to be able to go to college. My sister and I were the first ones to go to college in my family. And so I started, I started college as a psychology major for about one semester. And I took a sculpture class, specifically a sculpture class, In that sculpture class, I learned how to weld and how to forge metal. I started with copper and then steel, and I was forging these huge pieces of metal, and I was completely transfixed by this ability to be able to take this hard material and take it like butter, like fabric in my hands with, with the fire, with the heat. And I knew exactly when I knew that this is what I wanted to be doing and I became an art major then, so that was sort of the beginning of my career.
0: (laughs) I'm super curious about this idea of the lists, and I also have had sort of an experience multiple times in my life where something went from unconscious to conscious, and sometimes it was Physical, like you talked about, the ability to to work with this material and and to shape it in a way that was you know surprising. And I used to bend paper clips, certainly not as artwork, more as like a like an unaware habit. That then, when I became aware of it, it, it you know changed the way I thought of it. I also used to and still do it sometimes, but unintentionally, you know, count things. And both of those things are a factor in the way that I do my job. So I'm curious about the lists and what they were, and and if you still do them.
1: Well, I still do them in, in my research and in the way that i make art sort of the part about making art that nobody sees and you know what the lists were about in hindsight it made a lot of sense to me because that's what i do now as well they don't quite take the form of a list but they take the form of organizing bits of fascinating information that seemingly have nothing to do with one another and you know one of the great luxuries as an artist is that you don't have to be an expert in any one thing. Like you aren't a specialist in anything. You're a specialist in your own mind. And so I've always been really interested in lots of different things. And one of the ways that that has kind of come together in my work is that No, I'm interested in a lot of things. I'm interested in history. I'm interested in geology. I'm interested in philosophy. I'm interested in geography. I'm interested in formal sort of aspects of art making. I'm interested in different, really diverse cultural references. And some of it, I think it's like how all the the common denominator is, why does this thing Grab my attention, because in the end, you know, that that is what artists do. And I I always talk about the word and the word anesthetic and aesthetic and the etymological connection between, you know, if, if doctors anesthetize people, then, you know, artists aestheticize them. And the original meaning of the word aesthetic is to to render aware, you know, to make aware, to pay attention, which is, of course what it is we do as artists, you know, the rest sort of goes through all of these different permutations and ends up in the art world as a thing that has another life. But the process of art making is is really blind. And it's this really blind, contradictory process of paying attention, but not knowing the form of the thing that you're looking for. And the lists or the way of organizing research was a way of addressing some of the erasure and the invisibility, right? Because we've been, everything we know is so indexed and categorized by the discipline which produced that bit of knowledge that there's very little awareness or sensitivity around how, in fact, all of these things fit together in ways that are not accidents. I think that that's the best way that I can describe it, although words fail what it actually is when it's put into action, because it's even a mystery to myself, you know, it's really a kind of wandering within and paying attention and a kind of paying attention to something, but not entirely being able to justify why you're paying attention to it, only knowing that it's important somehow, and that why it's important maybe hasn't revealed itself to you, but that you should earmark it or save it or somehow create a reference point of it. And if you do that enough, which is what a list is too, you start to create these constellations, and they start to reveal something. And so in the most subjective way, I feel like that's what I'm doing.
0: It's so wonderful to hear you describe your practice and the process of making art. And one of the ways that I or one of the reasons really that I continue to do what I do and to be really seduced by the, the creative process and the experience of art, the aesthetic experience, is this connection to life. And I find myself really open to wandering the space of, of existence, you know, and and your description of, of how to make art is is really similar to the way that I have, you know, decided to kind of live in the world, which is this openness to things that we don't yet understand. And your description is so apt because it is about the reward. It isn't even at the end of the wandering or, you know, the end of the seeking. It's, it's about being open to that to that journey and i've used before on this podcast the word coddiwomple which i've learned through some of the the studying that i've done which is you know to move with purpose towards an unknown destination and it's similar to to any hyper aware existence and even this morning before you know we hopped on this recording i realized that i have built into my schedule a lot of unstructured time right now and at first it seems unproductive and then I realize that it's like hyper productive because I can't just flip the switch to have ideas it's when I really relax into that space that sometimes I'm given the gift of of figuring something out
1: yeah I mean that that seems like such a core principle of so many ancient ways of thinking and indigenous ways of thinking, which is that you need actually emptiness in order for something to occur. That kind of opening for the ability for something to happen is precisely when it can happen, it's cyclical too, right? It's like this kind of cycle of creating space and then watching it fill up. And if you look at nature, I mean, that is the way that nature uh, regulates itself. And that's actually the basis of the idea of sustainability. Nowadays, there's sort of like all of these punchy words, you know, like permaculture and all that. But the very principle of sustainability, which I look at as much broader not just as like kind of in food studies and 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 you know the the land although that too not just agriculturally but the whole notion of sustainability is that things can't be full all the time they can't be abundant all the time that they have to go through these cycles of kind of emptying out again precisely in order to create something new and You know, I mean, it's a it's a really core principle of Buddhism. It's a core principle of Bantu, Congo cosmology that so informs Afro syncretic, Afro Cuban, and Afro syncretic religions in Cuba, which is that something has to revolve and change and and sort of be empty in order to be new again. And so, yeah, I mean, nature is sort of like the primary place where we see that. It's a really important principle that I I think of in a really embodied way in, in my work so that you know like when I'm talking about the landscape because everybody thinks my work is sort of about landscape but you know it's not the whole that whole notion of landscape is a little bit of a foil and if anything I'm kind of thinking of our own bodies and the landscape and our own bodies as being these very reciprocal modes if you think of like the Apache word for land is the same as the word for mind. And When I read that in Robin Wall Kilmer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, I thought to myself, yes, I mean, it's like the, it's this connection between, you know, memory and geography, like the, the fact that these things aren't different, right? That you look at what we call nature or sometimes we call it landscape or sometimes we call it the environment. We look at these things as though they're, they're outside of our of ourselves, but they're not, right? They also live inside of us in these really reciprocal, refractive ways that are both intimate and immense, and that they're happening kind of like inside your mind and body and outside of it. And so, you know, it, it's only in sort of our Western understanding of place and landscape as this kind of vista or this framed view that we that we make it into an object in every other sort of more ancient tradition or different ways of seeing the world even culturally that's not the case you know there isn't a kind of we're not these spectators or these kind of characters on this stage of nature or or the land or landscape you know we're we're really sort of like completely integrated in it you know and i'm interested in all of those things when i use the word landscape i'm also really thinking about those rhythms and those rises and falls within our own beings, you know, and I feel like some, some of this language has been very co-opted by a kind of very new agey sort of way of thinking, but it's also just factual. It's it's also just true, right? It's, it is true that our bodies are water. It is true that, you know, the tides rise and fall. It is true that we are connected to all of the cycles that we witness in the seasonal changes around us. And so those cycles are cycles within cycles, within cycles, within cycles, and these concentric circles of cycles all happening always on these tiny, intimate, subterranean and internal ways that mirror all of the sort of cosmic and seismic things happening outside of us.
0: It's so true. And I love this idea of things being just true, you know, and that regardless of who uses the information for whatever, you know, personal or or collective purpose, uh, which may not be in alignment with what I value or, you know, what you need or, and I love that kind of simultaneity, right, of things just being true and the fluctuation that you were talking about in terms of the intimate and the monumental and how we navigate between those spaces both you know outside of ourselves and internally as well and what role art can and does play in being a, a guide and and being a companion in these explorations
1: i think that from the point of view of the art making rather than viewing art or or like witnessing art, it manifests itself in quite a different way. It's the ultimate vulnerability too, because you have to really understand lots of things within yourself that are revealed in the process of trying to understand something that once you figure out, gets put out into the world. But the part that happens before it's put out into the world is really quite unresolved it can be frightening too and it can be really kind of like daring yourself to sort of stay in something or look at something or dig deeper into something and so it's a very active place and certainly i've experienced i've experienced that that kind of wayfinding sort of looking at art and seeing things that i've been moved by but doing that yourself and you know I I have often regarded that as this kind of making something from nothing is is pretty like in its own quiet way is terrifying you know it's like this very terrifying sort of emptiness right it's like this emptiness that has to that you have to give shape to and it's uh there is a really redemptive quality to not so much the reward at the end because you i kind of never feel like i get to the end but more like these tiny moments of lucidity and sometimes they're extremely ephemeral in that like created act of making they're often very elusive and they're often very ephemeral but there are these moments of great lucidity that feel very much like the word you use truth Um, and they're they're very indelible they also don't it's funny too how truth never actually has to be explained you just sort of feel it and you know it and you recognize it and that's In in the studio, that's when I know when to stop, right? When something actually reveals its kind of true nature, right? It's kind of truth is revealed and then you kind of know you're done Um, and there's nothing else to add and nothing to take away. But it's very elusive and it uses like a set of tools in that sort of psychic and conceptual and material and physical and visual wayfinding It requires these tools, these faculties of intuition that, of course, have been beat out of us by every system that we participate in, by our educations, by our family structures, by our sense of the sorts of compartments and boxes that we need to stay in. And so the sort of private act of making something you know, when nobody's watching and you're basically, you can't lie to yourself, right? So that's the irony of like being an artist is that you can sometimes fool the world, right? Like people could like something or that, but it's really, really, really hard to like lie to yourself when you're really doing it. There is this search for something that you can't push or force or, demand, right? You have to like sort of allow it and surrender to it and sort of be, it's tumbling. It's, it's um, and it's very abstract what I'm describing and it's very subjective. But you're kind of feeling your way through something and it's, it's intuitive. And like my work is very research based. I do tons of reading and I care about facts. I care about reframing history. I care about how the poetic and the social political concerns that I have intertwine. I care about telling the story of what really happened and understanding things for myself but none of that is much use to me in that distillation process of like well now what do you do with it you know all of these things you acquire all this information you see the gaps and how the stories are, are told or how the parts of the list fit together but then how do you reveal that that's the mysterious part and that's the very humbling part of Actually, not even sometimes knowing how you get there, but but recognizing it when you do get there. And I really rely on that intuition as intellectual as I can be about certain things, and as research based as certain things can be. I am much more concerned with like this other way of knowing that's much more sort of somatic and intuitive, and that it's like a kind of remembering, but it's also a kind of I've often described it as recognizing or knowing something or remembering something, but not knowing how you know it. I've had lots of conversations with Cecilia Begunia about this. She's a very dear friend, and she came into my studio one time, and I had this entire body of work. And she basically just said to me, this is Indigenous work. The images that you are making are completely tied to Indigenous thought. And... It's not a claim that I would, I mean, certainly I'm very much interested in some of these topics, but to have her pointed out so sort of sure of herself made me think about it differently because within these frameworks of social justice and sort of how certain people's history has been completely omitted, certainly people of color, indigenous people, Black people, Latinx people, transgender people, immigrants, right? We can go on and on about how all the erasure is sort of multifaceted and stacked all on top of one another in myriad ways that are really intertwined. Um, And all of those things are true. But this very basic point that she made, which is that indigenous knowledge is actually just human knowledge. It's a kind of remembering that we all have access to. And it's why, regardless of who you are and where you're from, for example, when you are in nature, like even just that description of being in nature is a very contrived understanding of the world. But when we are not in an urban setting and we actually go out someplace where all we have to do is be immersed in in an environment that we're not sort of constrained by the way it's been laid out, we immediately recognize and have access to this thing that we're talking about, right? It's not like some people have access to it and some people don't have access to it. We all kind of come from that. And we all kind of come from the same sort of connection to those materials, to the kind of memory that's retained in the landscape and in a tree or in a rock. You know, I remember walking through a forest in Kyoto with some friends of mine in Japan where I've spent a lot of time. And it was a trail that was maybe, there was a temple, you know, that you eventually went to and it was maybe like a half hour hike in through the forest to get to the temple. And at the entrance of this sort of park area, there was a sign that said that you could not talk when you went in there. You could not talk. And so it was, everybody was silent. There were about five of us. And every time that we would pass a really, really old tree, a huge old tree, my friends would all just stop and just recognize sort of like the spirit of this tree in this very real palpable way. And so, and, and, you know, in other ways, you know, like the way that sometimes if you're Traveling through the South or even parts of New England do this for me, too, where the hauntedness of the land itself, like the thing that the land remembers, that the place remembers, is so thick and it's so sort of like indelible that it feels haunted. You can sense it. And I'm really interested in that aspect of place, of how being in certain places and in certain coordinates, and this has happened to me all over the world in different places, you actually become, if you pay attention and if you slow down to the pace of what's around you, you become very, very sensitive to what's there because what's there is just different versions of what was there before. And that's the sort of crux of sustainability is that all of it just decomposes and becomes something else. You know, what you're looking at is just many, many versions of itself in the same way that. When you look at, say, you know, a, a gold salt cellar in a in a European museum or in a Baroque church, when you see, you know, Bernini's Baldacchino or something in St. Peter's, you know, you're looking at gold that used to be lots of other things, and it's stolen gold. It's it's gold that's been melted down, but which retains like a kind of ghost image of every other sacred thing it has been before. It, it retains this memory of being some really important. Mesoamerican power object. And, uh, you know, I think about things like that, about how materials are everything else that they used to be as well. I think about that a lot, about how like most gold in what we now call South America, that was basically stolen gold, was put on Spanish galleons, already melted into the form of ingots, already in this kind of neutral neutralized erased form before it ever crossed the Atlantic again but the material itself remembers what it was you know I, I I like to think that materials themselves remember what they are and everything that they have been
0: I think that's one of the things that drew me to art when I started studying art history too is this idea of what something used to be and who made it and who used it and particularly if it has any kind of utility? When did they use it? Who were they sitting with? What were they talking about? What did they look like? You know, what did their space look like? Where were they? And I was thinking back to our first project together, which was in 1999, and thinking about how you described for me what it was you intended to make and listening to I'm just reminded of really what an incredible orator you are, what a great storyteller you are, how articulate you are in your ability to express your ideas. And I wonder what you think about the role of storytelling in in your work. Does it have a place?
1: I think the older I've gotten, and the more I've matured as an artist, and the more visibility and ability to sort of state and claim my own narrative with agency, the more I've sort of revealed. It's not that those stories weren't always there. It's just that in the early part of my career, and not just my career, lots of artists' career. I think of like Felix Gonzalez Torres as well, um, and, and many other artists. You know the 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 sort of vehicle of abstraction was a really, it was a really important way to hide things and to not have to tell a story about something, um, even though it might have a story, you know? And, uh, you know, like I'm remembering Carmen Herrera, I used to go visit her in the last couple of years, she just died at 106, but from like 100 to 140, Four or so, I was I was visiting with her every once in a while. It's so bizarre to say that from 100 to 104, but I remember her telling me and talking to me about. She would tell me all these stories about Cuba and, and living in Paris and all all kinds of things. And she would talk about how those abstract green paintings that she made in the in the 50s, they were about Saint Teresa of Avila, who was a philosopher, basically, she was a mystic and a philosopher, and Carmen had read all of the books. And so it's like, abstraction can hide a lot of things that maybe the story stays in an intimate setting, and it remains private. And I don't know what it is, I think it's maturity, but I think it's also, there's a kind of confidence and a kind of unapologetic insistence on something. Um, as you get older as an artist where maybe you don't need to hide the story as much anymore, but the story is always there, you know, even if it's an internal story. And so I think that some of it is about like survival. Some of it is about learning. And I've, I've talked to lots of artists of color who have the same exact explanation where learning to tell the story well is an act of protecting the story not being whitewashed or diluted or misinterpreted. I've learned to tell the story of why I make things and there's a kind of insistence on that. I've I've seen like a lot of artists who who I really respect like Ana Mendieta or like Felix and Dallas Torres or you know lots of artists whose narratives posthumously have been really altered and I know that one of the great privileges that I have is that I can say what I mean. I can say what I mean, that there's great power in that because my practice is really subtle and it's about these liminal spaces. It's not about one thing. It's not just about political things. It's not just about beautiful things. It's not just about history. It's not just about materials. It's, you know, there's a whole social practice to what I do as well. And so it's not about any of those things. And the tendency, I think, is for highlight one part of your practice at the expense of all the other parts. And so I've been really mindful of that not happening and just doing that by maintaining archives, by there being me describing what the work is. I do a lot of my own writing. I've had this conversation with a lot of people like Amalia Massa-Baines or Cecilia Vicuña, who are artists that are now in their 70s and who were grossly, largely ignored for 50 years. And they're brilliant artists, brilliant thinkers. They, you know, have MacArthur's and PhDs and you you name it, they sort of check off all the boxes. And it's only now that the art world is sort of waking up to a lifetime of their work, of their really excellent work. And, you know, when I have these conversations with them, they say the same thing. Well, I've had to write my own essays. I've had to because there was no curator, there was no institution that would collect it. I think it's a way of protecting the subtlety of the work. For me, it's about protecting the subtlety of the work. And because that's really like where I think my work is most powerful is when it resists being one thing and when it actually is about these really, really subtle connections that are as strange and as beautiful and as poignant as those lists I made when I was a little kid you know.
0: No one wants to be reduced to something that's understandable by other people (laughs) you know. uh, No one wants that for their work, no one wants that as a person and yet that is the way that for the most part society pushes. You know people want to understand things, people want to be able to say, okay, I get it. Now what's, you know, the next thing people want to feel comfortable. And so there's a fierceness to standing in that place to say, it's not about one thing. And I'm not about one thing. And, you know, to bring your whole self to being alive and to making work and to showing work and that vulnerability. And, and I'm grateful for you to take the time and and hold the space to share all of that with us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've known each other for a long time. <laughs> I'm remembering those the, that first show that we did at Berkeley. And uh, yeah, it's been it seems like a long time ago, but there's so many things about that show that are still really important to me and so many of the, the like the thread of the ideas is still so connected to so many of the things that I'm doing today.
0: You know, my understanding, I think, of what you were doing then was really at kind of the, the limits of, of my understanding at that time. And I feel so grateful to have the connectivity to that. When I think back about that show, when I think back to that show and, and what I understood it to be about, it was, for me, about the very essence of seeing and visuality and the experience of kind of like seeing yourself seeing and feeling yourself feeling. And I think that is part of the kind of core principles of, of how, how I understand art to, to be. One of the things that we haven't talked about yet, and that is, really important for me in my life. And before we started recording, I talked about some kind of parallels, people that there are very few people that I feel like I've had sort of a parallel life with. And and one of them is you. And, And part of it includes not just being a woman, but also being a mother. And we are talking about art and this is an art podcast. And I would love to ask you to just say a few things about the duality of, of that role of, you know, being an artist and being a, a woman and a mother.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's sort of like, this is a very much an extension of what we've already talked about, which is that this understanding that we're like compartmentalized into these roles is a totally artificial thing. We understand ourselves holistically we understand ourselves in a holistic way and of course yeah we don't want to explain ourselves to someone in parts and pieces and we we also don't want to like what you were saying we also don't want to be understood in parts and pieces and so to me like you know I don't know how to pick out the one strand of the weave that's just being an artist or just being a woman or just being a mother right we just don't like experience the world that way but I'll say that those aspects of my life which is like the common denominator right they're all just like my lived experience um are really really integrated into how i've found ways to be an artist you know and there's a kind of resourcefulness and inventiveness and a kind of efficiency and a kind of nimbleness that being a mother trains in you, where you don't have the chance to second guess yourself, and you you learn to become very finely attuned to your instinct and your reaction to something. And certainly that is something that has been very useful for me in making art, which is that I've learned to trust my instinct and you know, I've ended up with like 30 years of work where it doesn't always look like it was made by the same person. You know, I have lots of different parts of my practice. If I want to make a huge public artwork, I make a huge public artwork. I also make tiny little drawings. I make sculptures. I make things that look like paintings. I I do things that have to do with like programming and, you know, these kinds of social structures that I'm creating, you know, behind the scenes that are also a really important part of the artwork. I think that, that ability to move towards and with the thing in the practice that feels right it is completely based on a kind of i don't know an embodied sort of sense of knowing that something's the the right way to go or the right thing to start you know exploring or trying or 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 playing around with it. it it's almost like the definition of motherhood right it's like you don't know you don't know what you're doing, right? You don't know what you're doing and every day is completely different. And it's, you can't figure it out. You can never figure it out. You're just always in the process of it. Um, And that's a lot what it feels like to be an artist. You know, it's like, there's no, you can't take shortcuts. You can't lie to yourself. You can't take shortcuts. You can't fool yourself. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't, you know, fool your way out of it. You get out what you put in, so to speak, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine I can't imagine being an artist without having had the experience of being a mother. And I can't imagine being a mother without the kind of richness that being an artist has brought to my mothering. It's both ways, you know, it's a kind of reciprocity there that is, I think maybe rooted in the ability to nurture something that's not you or to nurture something that's bigger than you. And that maybe lives alongside of you or Keeps you company a certain way, but that you nurture and that you invest and that you that you shape by caring, and you know that's the part I think of art making that has been—it's not transferable, it's not it's not transactional. It's it's really like you have to make it, and you have to make it in this really humble way that is a kind of quietly building something or like you know like like weaving, which is you know it's like weaving something, which is like. It's not heavy lifting or anything. It's not like you're making a building, but you're kind of like slowly kind of like working at something little by little by little, sometimes very quietly. And you can relate to this, you know, when your children are very little, your ways of making and of being creative and of being productive in your own interests are different. They change. They're they're different ways of sort of like putting a a dent into like the work that you're trying to do and, and shaping something little by little. So I'm really I'm really interested in that aspect of caring about something and shaping it precisely because you care enough to notice it and to be curious about it.
0: That is potentially the best description of motherhood that I've ever heard. And this idea of yeah, being kept company and being held accountable. <laughs> and getting out what you put in and the rawness of it and the hardness of it and the grace of it and the the newness of it every day. And for me, it's this circumstance where I'm given the opportunity multiple times a day to think about how I want to be, how I want to respond to any of these particular circumstances, a particular question. And sometimes it's verbal and so often it's invisible and Mm -hmm. it's choosing to engage with something that you know. And as you said earlier, that you don't know why you know it, but you know it or something that you can see that apparently no one else can see, but it's there. And it's, it's a need from another person that you, that you love so much
1: we can be very expansive to, that we need to perhaps be very expansive as well about the kinds of definitions that, we attach to mothering, because there's lots of different ways of mothering. It's an expansive word, right? We, we should all be sort of nurturing something that way, like something bigger than ourselves that way. That notion of mothering, for me, it extends way beyond any kind of like, yeah, biological, but also, you know, cis heterosexual sort of understanding of what being a mother is. I, I think that Participating in democracy is a kind of aspect of mothering. Right? I think that being sort of like an individual that is able to influence a collective sphere or you know societal sphere is a kind of mothering too. It's a kind of nurture. It's a kind of caring about something and seeing yourself in something that isn't necessarily you, right? Um, and that's that's actually like at the root of the definition of compassion seeing yourself in something that isn't you and that understanding that compassion is like a relationship of equals, you know, that you have to be able to see yourself in in all of these other things. And so that can be a piece of paper that you're drawing on or the way you craft and shape words or the way you treat another individual in almost any situation in your life. And it's it's interesting to see how the art world and all the other worlds too, but since our, our world, since our world happens to coincide with the art world, to see like how museums and institutions are grappling so much with the fact that you can't scale that. Like the invisibility of how institutions function in the world has completely erased that one-to-one relationship of simply caring about things on a, on, a, on a smaller scale. And so the the kind of direction that I see, you know, institutions being forced to pivot to is that those systems are made out of relationships that we have to one another, you know, and that, that starts in the most basic way as the relationship between two people um, or like museums are basically made of boards and administrative people and visitors and artists. And so it's like, those are all individuals, but we kind of like when it scales up that big, we have no way of talking about this very expansive idea of mothering, right? And so we keep the mothering conversation somewhere very far away from the institutional conversation. But, you know, we're at a point where it it actually is forced to, like, recalibrate itself, because that's where the answers are, is in that accountability to one another, you know? That's true whether it's, like, a small group of people or a nuclear family or whether it's, you know, a larger and more expansive community and figuring out who defines it and who who's accountable to whom within those systems. So, yeah, I mean, like that idea of mothering is expansive. It's everything. It it has, you know, it reverberates across all of the things that we're used to thinking of as being not mothering, you know,
0: (laughs) you know, I'm struck by, Some of the things that you shared earlier about the opportunity with age, I guess, um, or experience or maturity to not hide and to bring a, a clarity of intention and an authenticity to the space. And for me, it comes with being okay with potentially making other people uncomfortable and not making anyone uncomfortable intentionally, or as the purpose or the core, and just knowing that sometimes that happens, and allowing for not feeling responsible to kind of rescue anyone from their from their discomfort, and um, allowing the the sort of awkwardness that that sometimes happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, that's when you know that it's working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's precisely the, the sign that it is working. Um, and so it's also exactly what tells you that what you're doing is effective.
0: It's very useful. My next guest is the incredible artist Fred Eversley. Fred Eversley is the subject of a major exhibition at the Orange County Museum of Art when we opened to the public on October 8th. He and I talk about his history with the institution and his history as an artist. He is an incredible storyteller, and I know that this is an episode you will not want to miss. Conversations About Art is part of Heise.art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Hallie Zander. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougal. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you for listening.